Hey everybody, welcome back to the Hope Recovered Podcast. I'm Kristen, and today we have a special conversation with Ken Barton. Uh, Ken actually taught the Certified Peer Recovery Specialist class that I was able to attend, and today I was able to sit down with him and talk through his story of being a person in long-term recovery as well as a person who is HIV positive. I'm really thankful for the chance I had to talk with Ken, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Ken, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, my name is Ken Barton, and I am with uh, TADIS, uh, Tennessee Association of Alcohol, Drugs, and Other Addiction Services, and I am a peer trainer for the CPRS, for the Certified Peer Recovery Specialist Program in Tennessee. So, about me. <laughs> I'm an Aries. <laughs> We have talked a little bit about the CPRS program on the show before, but would you mind kind of explaining a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so the CPRS program is for people who have lived experience of either mental illness, co-occurring disorder, or substance use disorder, who have two years of recovery. They can apply to become a certified peer recovery specialist in the state of Tennessee, and it's a 40-hour training. Typically now it's happening 40 hours, either online or in person. And it's a really great program. I mean, because it, it really gives people purpose, you know, for, for things that they've gone through as far as lived experience with either mental illness or co-occurring or substance use disorder and kind of gives people back some kind of direction of hope for their lives and helping other people to reach a level of recovery for themselves. So very, very fortunate to be a part of that program and even more fortunate to be someone who is a trainer of that program. So very, very blessed when it comes to that. Yeah, that's a really cool program. Everyone on our team has been through that program. Diane actually is another trainer. And so we definitely are super supportive and love the program. And I, I will put more information in the show notes for anyone who may be interested in going through that training. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really, well, somewhat simple process as far as the first steps go. You just go to tn.gov slash CPRS. Hopefully that still works. And um, that will take you to, you know, the first steps of applying to to get into one of the trainings themselves. So Yeah. And there's usually a wait list. It takes some time. But that just yeah, we're trying to work out. on that. <laughs> but it just shows like how fast the program is growing. And it's really cool. Yeah, this is my sixth year of being involved in that program. And it's it's amazing to see just how many people have been on wait lists for like, you know, a couple of years, some of them and and things, and then see them finally get into the training and stuff. And and become part of the peer recovery specialist community and stuff. Cause we do have our own community and stuff like that. So, which is amazing in, in itself because it's such a supportive community to be involved with. So, yeah. yeah. So one thing we try to always do on the show is to share stories of hope recovered. So would you mind sharing your story with us? Sure. For me, I was, I was someone who uh, grew up in an abusive kind of household 
my parents had a very tumultuous relationship when I was a kid. And so there were many nights of, you know, just uh, lots of childhood trauma around arguments and fights that my parents would have that I would kind of step into and intervene and, and somewhat became the target, I guess, of a lot of the anger and, and stuff that was happening around me to the point that I was, you know, informally in a foster care uh, situation when I was in, in middle school and early high school years. And, um, and I really learned about, you know, resiliency and, and, and growing past, you know, things that were happening in my life through those relationships with my foster family and stuff. When my parents did finally divorce, I did go back and live with my mother full time and she was a single mom and, and we, we had a very modest, you know, um, house and stuff. And she, my mom was a wonderful, wonderful woman, but uh, she had an eighth grade education and, and not a lot of skills and things. And it primarily worked in factories, you know, like her, um, her adult life. And whenever I came back to live with her, she had just started a job at a Piggly Wiggly as a, ca as a cashier and wasn't making a lot of money, but my father was disabled. So that allowed us to have a little bit of an income from a dependent disability for myself. So that kind of paid our rent and stuff. When I was in high school, I actually worked, you know, three jobs when I was in high school so that I could still go to high school. My mom wanted me to quit when I was 16. She wanted me to quit school and get a job in a factory and, and help, you know, support the house and stuff. And I made a deal with her and said, you know, I'll, I'll work, you know, three jobs if I have to, which I did and uh, to bring in the money to pay our bills and stuff. So, so that was kind of my, my childhood, you know, in my, uh, in my high school career and stuff. It wasn't until I was 22 and had been diagnosed with HIV that, um, and went home to visit my father who was in the hospital that I found out that a lot of the, uh, I guess a lot of the anger that he had toward me as a, as a kid was that he didn't really think that I was his son and stuff. And, and I found that out only because I walked into the lobby of the hospital and um, his girlfriend came up to me and said, who I'd never met <laughs> and came up to me and said, uh, wow, I, you have to be Kenneth because you look exactly like your dad. I don't know why he doesn't think you're his son. Wow. And so, so in the middle of St. Thomas hospital, St. <laughs> Thomas East, um, I found out, you know, what the whole thing was that really kept me and my father from having a good relationship when I was a kid and stuff. You know, I, I had, again, just found out at 22 that, that I was HIV positive. And so that was a really, 22 was not my favorite year of growing up and as a child or as a kid or young adults. It was um, a really difficult kind of transitional year and stuff for me. And soon after I found out about my diagnosis, I, I started working in the field of HIV and AIDS and was working as a uh, director of education and prevention for a couple of small nonprofit organizations in, in Southern and Western Kentucky around Bowling Green and stuff. And, 
and really just kind of found my purpose in that because it really finding out that diagnosis back then it was considered to be a death sentence you know there was no treatment and stuff like that so in fact whenever i was diagnosed the doctor told me you know you've got six months maybe five years you know so so really be mindful of how you live you know for the next couple of years and stuff and uh for me you know 31 years later <laughs> now you know i'm still here and and i think that's by you know the grace of my my higher power and and also i hope that a lot of that you know comes from just being resilient you know through that whole diagnosis and and living those many years without any treatment and stuff i've been very very fortunate i i in fact did not go on treatment uh, even after the advent of protease inhibitors and things like that in the late 90s early 2000s i still was not at a, at a place in my in my diagnosis, meaning like my CD4 count, viral loads, things like that, were still relatively low, you know, to the point that it was, I was treatment optional, if that makes any sense. Like I could decide to go on treatment or, or delay that even longer. So in 2012, I did decide to start uh, treatment and only because the medications and things that were coming out were were so much more advanced and and I saw so many more people uh, doing well. I continued to work in that field of HIV and AIDS for probably 20 years, you know, and we don't think about it, you know, as being one of those places where peer support started, you know, we don't talk about that a lot, but it really was, you know, a lot for a lot of us, you know, who worked in that field, we were, we were people living with, you know, HIV or AIDS. And, and so it really, you know, and we were helping each other, you know, so much to the point that the CDC started to recognize that people who were HIV positive could help other people who were HIV positive. And in fact, the last, um, the last position I held in that field was actually working in prevention for positives which was working around prevention of uh, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, and also um, just other STDs and, and things like that. And just overall like health and, uh, and making, you know, trying to bring awareness, I guess, more to that community and stuff. So that was a huge thing for me. And I really, I really enjoyed working in that. And then that led me to, you know, coming to work in, in the CPRS program to a large degree, you know, and, you know, through my journey of my own recovery from mental health issues and stuff. So, and then later on also for my journey of, you know, being someone who is co-occurring as well. Mm -hmm. So that kind of happened later in my life. It wasn't until my late thirties, early forties, after my mother passed away from cancer that, that I kind of started to depend more on medication, drugs, and things like that. I had been, since I was in high school, I can remember my mom every time, you know, I would get bullied at school for being the gay boy and stuff, but, but she would run to the doctor and he would give him, he would give her rather, you know, anxiety medication for me to take and stuff like that. 
So that's kind of where I began to become a little dependent upon the anxiety medication. But it wasn't until I started having like panic uh, attacks and stuff like that. As someone with, you know, a major depression and panic anxiety disorder and PTSD and co-occurring, you know, it wasn't until I started having those panic attacks like every day while she was in treatment for cancer and then later in hospice that that I really, really became dependent upon that medication, you know, so. So that's a little bit of my story, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really, you know, I'm not someone who, I guess, who tells their story very often. You know, I, I, I talk, you know, a lot throughout the CPRS training as a trainer about different things that have happened in my life and stuff, but I've never been in a place where I've actually told, you know, my story in recovery. Right. So. Yeah. But one of our first episodes is the value of lived experience. Mm-hmm. That, that phrase has just stood out again and again to me as we go and just really a big goal of ours is to just promote those stories and reduce stigma because we see it so much in our community and people just don't hear these stories outside you know because we talk about our, our recovery community and our CPRS community and how supportive everyone is but outside of that community it's hard to really find people who have seen those stories of hope. A lot of them have seen things like um, the opioid crisis on the news and this despair and it's a problem and we want to show the other side of that. Yeah and it is I mean you know as you know I'm also someone who's Mm -hmm. lost you know two of my siblings both of my sisters to to the opioid crisis Mm -hmm. you know and you know my father I lost my father didn't die from his addiction, but he was also someone who was who was someone who used, who was you know uh, someone who was addicted to his own medications and stuff. So, yeah, it's really it's really amazing that we don't talk about these things more often, I guess, or have safe spaces where we can talk about them. Right. You know, even you know, thirty something years later in this country, when it comes to HIV you know, and stuff, there's still tons of stigma around being HIV positive, you know, and, and I think a lot of it, you know, has waned in some respects because of, of the medication advances and stuff and people becoming undetectable and, and things like that doesn't mean they're cured, doesn't mean we're cured. It just means that the virus is under control, you know, and I think a lot of people, in fact, I've had people recently that I've, disclosed my status to that I've become friends with that you know are like is that still around I didn't even know that was still a thing is that still a thing (laughs) you know and it's like yeah it's still a thing (laughs) still living with it you know and it's um I don't know but I do think it's important you know that we do talk openly about about the things that are impacting our lives So especially, you know, during COVID, I think a lot of people really did, you know, experience a lot of PTSD and and things like that. Just, you know, we're not a good, we're not good as a society as far as being locked down or, you know, and things like that. And I think it really did affect a lot of people, you know, who didn't have a lot of support and stuff. So, uh, or who maybe lived alone or lived away from family and, and stuff. And, 
you know, so I think it's a little bit better. I love the fact that we see and hear all of these commercials and advertisements and stuff for better help and, you know, things like that now, which we didn't do yeah. that before. So if 20 years ago, if you went to therapy, you didn't talk about it. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. And, you know, and there's still people who, you know, and, and mostly, you know, in my generation and stuff, I'm 53 and, you know, in, in the fifties, a lot of people in the fifties and sixties, seventies, you know, still don't talk about those things because they think they're private matters and you shouldn't go out and air your laundry, you know, right. kind, of, kind of thing, you know, but, but for me, I don't, I don't see it as airing my laundry so much as, as so much, so much as just sharing my experience, you know, mm-hmm. my experience, strength and hope in that. Yeah. What we say in, in recovery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. How have you seen some of the ways that stigma has impacted you just personally where you're at in your in your walk? Yeah, I've seen a lot of because I have had, you know, like legal ramifications or repercussions or whatever from my past as far as from my co-occurring disorder and stuff. I see a lot of people who are who are very, you know prejudice when it comes to working with or, or dealing with someone who's had, you know, a history of legal offenses, things like that. When it comes to HIV, you know, I, there are many times that I've been turned down for jobs and things like that because I was someone with HIV, you know, and, um, and living with HIV. I'm not sure if they thought it was going to be that I was going to get sick or if they thought I was going to be too much of a risk for insurance or, or what the problem with was with that of course it's something that's also covered under the ada so they could never actually say this is why you we won't hire you for this job kind of thing but there was always some other you know reason you know right but but would have issues surrounding that and stuff i remember my first job my first professional job um was i worked for an airline i was a, a flight attendant for five years. And at one point I wanted to go back to that. And I had interviewed with an airline out of Atlanta and went through like two or three interviews was like, had was, you know, hired for the most part and stuff and went to uh, have a physical because they required a physical. And during the physical, I, you know, informed the medical staff, you know, that, you know, that I was HIV positive and and stuff and and then like two days later i got a call saying you know what we we overbooked this training class and we're not going to be able to have you in training so sorry you know and it's like okay but and it turned out that i was the only person that was you know not going to be in that training class right overbooked by one (laughs) so so yeah so there's been there's been things like that that have happened you know and, and I'm grateful for those things because those doors weren't meant for me. You know, right. that wasn't my, just wasn't my door. And I'm very grateful for the path that my wife has, has had. Mm-hmm. So. So a lot of what we do is work with congregations and churches and we invite them to come alongside us and be certified recovery congregations, help them to be recovery friendly and welcoming um, to those in that community or those seeking to be in recovery. 
So do you have any words for our listeners who may be a member of congregation who's trying to make it more recovery friendly? What can they do to come alongside this movement? Well, you know, I think for me, because I am, I'm someone who's very spiritual. I'm not, I'm not someone who is religious per, per se, mm-hmm. um, uh, only because I've had churches, you know, and I've had people tell me, you know, that uh, because I'm gay, because I'm, you know, have, um, because I'm this or because I'm that, you know, that kind of stuff right. that I couldn't be a Christian, you know, and stuff. And, you know, for me, that that really is a personal relationship between me and my higher power. You know, that's not anything that um, anyone else can, you know, tell me is not, it's not happening between me and my God or my higher power um, or within my own realm of Christianity and uh, my only walk, you know, with that, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think that, you know, a lot of times, you know, churches may make the mistake of, of discounting people you know, because they don't fit into a certain mode or a certain a certain way of, of life or, you know, whether it be being gay or being, you know, being poor or being, you know, someone who's in the throes of addiction or, mm-hmm. or someone who's having mental health challenges, you know, uh, things like that. I mean, where they really could, you know, benefit from the gifts that those people bring right. to them as well. Because those are undeniably, you know, from our higher powers, those gifts, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've, in some ways, I, you know, I urge churches to reach out, you know, to communities, you know, that maybe they have, they have maybe slighted, you know, in the past and, and thought that those people would, could give us no value or, you know, have no value here and recognize that, yeah, we all have value. And we all have things that um, that we can learn from from each other. So yeah, absolutely. And again, it just seems like it just keeps coming back to that stigma. When we don't understand, we fear, and when we fear people, we hurt them. Um, yeah. And that I've seen again and again. That's the case, and it it's so hard, especially for people who are new in recovery, who are seeking that belonging and that connection. To yeah way like that can be so hard yeah I mean studies have shown us that you know the one thing that that really does can that really does help people during the early journeys of recovery from either mental health or substance abuse or co-occurring is that connection you know to Mm -hmm. community and stuff and feeling like they're part of something else you know because maybe they've been part of a world where everybody was using before and now you know, making those connections to be a part of the world where people aren't, you know, and people are, you know, being more positive and more intentional, you know, with their lives and stuff. Um, you know, it could be something that's going to save lives. You know, maybe not all of us can go to Narcan training or and things like that and, and save somebody who's overdosing, but we can help, you know, by helping them pick up their lives after, you know, such events and things like that. Just by being present, you know, absolutely, and, and listening to them, and um, and just really offering them hope, you know, for a different life and a different connection with mm-hmm. the world. So. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like you said, everyone has different gifts to offer, both in the church and 
and those that we're, we're seeking to serve. Yeah. And so we may not all offer help or hope in the same way. Mm-mm. No, no. And that's, you know, and that's okay. You know, yeah. we, we can all, because we all, again, we all have our own gifts that mm-hmm. we can offer and share and stuff. And maybe that will be, you know, just cooking, you know, once a week for a meeting, like if there's a 12 step meeting at your church, you know, like maybe just offering snacks, you know, or something like that. Um, not during the meeting, but, you know, for them mm-hmm. afterwards or, or something like that, or, or just having like a closed bank, you know, and stuff in your church for people in recovery um, mm-hmm. that they can access, you know, um, or having, you know, members of your congregation, you know, like offer services that, uh, that people wouldn't or- ordinarily maybe be able to afford, you know, like uh, free haircuts or to right. members or um, something like that. You know, just anything that we can do to help to show other people that we're there, we're present, and we we want to help. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. I think that's the in that the Christ-like thing to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and just, meet people and and serve. Yeah. yeah. And meeting them exactly where they are, you know, exactly. and not um, with no preconceived ideas of how they should be, just meeting them mm-hmm. with how they are, how they are in this world. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, we touched on community a little bit, um, but I wanted to come back and, and just kind of see how has being a member of the LGBT community impacted your recovery? Well, you know, that's a good question because, you know, there's not enough, in my view, in my opinion, there's not enough like LGBT specific, like 12 step meetings and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, you know, as someone from that community, and, you know, a lot of our, a lot of us, a lot of the LGBTQ, you know, community found our connections and our acceptance, you know, for the first time within like bars and things like that, like things that maybe didn't offer the healthiest of cultures, you know, Mm -hmm. offered us community and offered us, you know, connection, but maybe not the healthiest of circumstance and stuff. So, you know, creating a safe space, you know, where you might, where the community might hold, you know, like sober dances and things like that for the LGBT community, mm-hmm. you know, and, and stuff so that they can get to know each other in a different way, you know, and hopefully, you know, un- without the influence of uh, any kind of drugs or alcohol and stuff like that. I think that would be amazing. I would love to see churches do more of that kind yeah. of stuff. That would um, be incredible. Yeah. I know I didn't even think about how a lot of that community was maybe formed in, in clubs or bars you know, I was recently able to attend the Pride Fest up in Franklin. Just seeing people come together and be so open and welcoming. I mean, that's what we really push for in both congregations and the recovery community. Yeah. Which Franklin? Franklin, um, Franklin Tennessee. Okay. I um, went to the one in Franklin, Kentucky, actually. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I was like, what? Really? <laughs> yeah, no, not that one. <laughs> um, it was actually Franklin, Tennessee's first Pride Fest. It was Franklin, Kentucky's first Pride Fest. Really? That's the small town that I grew up in, yeah, had their awesome. first Pride Fest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, was a, it was really cool to be able to go up and, and support a friend and to just experience that as something I haven't experienced before. And I 
but like you said, that community and that camaraderie and just understanding these, you know, the connection that comes from shared experience. And a lot of people have this, you know, this shared almost collective trauma of being marginalized and outcast and to come together and feel free to be who they are. It was, I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I cried just walking through, just seeing the joy on people's faces and freedom. And that's what we want for people in recovery. And that's so amazing that you got to attend that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really cool. Yeah. What are, what are some, I mean, anything else that you want to leave listeners with people who may not normally be exposed to these kinds of conversations? You know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, faith and recovery and community and things like that. But I know it's really hard for people, especially in this area, Bible Belt, West Tennessee, to talk about issues of sexuality and gender and I mean, even HIV and things like that. So what do you, what do you want our listeners to know? You know, I, I think, you know, I, if, if there's one thing that I would, I would really want, you know, a message to be about, it's just about hope and acceptance, you know, and, um, and again, just meeting people where they are, you know, and, um, and, you know, and being supportive, you know, just being a supportive person, uh, for people so that they can, you know, whenever they're experiencing problems and, and things like that, you know, um, that they can reach out and get the help that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at it statistically, and I'm not sure about all of the statistics with the LGBTQ uh, community, statistically, it's one of the highest that experience drug and alcohol issues. And also it's one of the highest that experience suicide and right. um, suicide attempts and stuff which was a huge part of my own, you know, journey and stuff too, you know, just helping people to, to really recognize that they do have a place in this world and, and that it's not, it's not such a cold, difficult place to navigate, you know, mm-hmm. you're talking about bullying and stuff. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, when I was, I would get bullied every day, you know, when I went to high school, I can remember my freshman year, uh, there was a group of of seniors who pretty much met me at the door every morning to to start to bully me and then continue that throughout the day as I was changing classes and everything else. I mean, I was that kid, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just helping people overcome those kinds of traumas and stuff and showing them that, hey, you know what, that may have been that may have happened back then. And we aren't going to discount that because that's part of your experience. Mm-hmm. But here's what we can do now. Here's what we can offer. Here's the support that you can have now. I think that's just a really important message to have in this world. Yeah. So. And, you know, it kind of all ties back in. We each have our own gifts. We each have something to add. And, yeah. and that really shows how much we each have a place in this world and how we can take those traumas and that pain and use it to be hope for someone else. Exactly. And it doesn't make it go away. It doesn't really make it easier to cope with and manage, but it gives it somewhat of a purpose. Yeah. And it redeems it in some way. And um, I think that's part of the beauty of being a CPRS, tying yeah. it way back to the beginning. And, and that's one of the things I love about being a CPRS is 
I can use my experience with anxiety and panic attacks and, and really sit with someone and especially someone who's having a panic attack and be like, okay, I know what this feels like. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like you're going to die, <laughs> but we can walk through it. And, um, and to be able to meet people in that moment, whether it's addiction or, you know, their first few days of sobriety or some mental health concerns or someone trying to navigate uh, life just in general here Mm -hmm. and to be able to just share the hope of what we have overcome yeah Yeah. and to show you know that we can overcome them you Mm -hmm. know we can overcome these things and you know and be that face of you know someone who's gone through it you know and and also to you know, cast out that shame around Yeah. It. And the more we talk about it, the more people feel like they can talk about it. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, kind of why we started all of this is to start breaking down stigma. And let's talk about the hard things and the things that get kind of whispered about in the corners. Let's, let's put it out there because we want people to feel safe sharing their stories and so I feel like the way to, to do that is to start by sharing our own. And that's how we can create a safe space. Um, exactly. And so I'm really thankful for you coming on here and sharing your story. I really appreciate you asking me to do this. Again, I'm not, I don't typically, you know, share my story and um, and stuff. So I'm I'm really, I'm really thankful for you for asking me to do it and me getting the courage up to actually do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad. I, I hope this conversation is, is going to be, it, it's a little different, you know, it's fun. And I hope it's something our listeners can really learn from. Um, and so I'm really glad to have you on. Um, it's good to catch up with you again. It's been you a- too, Kristen. Thank you so much. But yeah, thank you. Is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? Just encouraging people to, you know, if you are someone with lived experience, you know, to check out the CPRS program and becoming a certified peer recovery specialist and helping other people in your community. And I'll put that link in the show notes. So all you have to do is scroll down and click on it and make it really easy. Right on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you all so much for coming along on that conversation. I hope it was encouraging and insightful for you and that you were able to learn from his perspective and his story of hope recovered. I just want to remind you to make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss an episode. Find us on social media, Facebook or Instagram at Hope Recovered. We'd love to hear from you, hear your thoughts on the episode, um, and just begin a, a conversation in a community around, around what we talk about. Uh, be sure to rate and review on your podcasting platform if you feel so inclined. And we hope to have you back here next Monday for another episode of Hope Recovered. And as always, we just want to leave you with the fact that we do recover.